I have a particular um, recurring nightmare. Uh, no, it's not that one. We all, psychologists say we all have that one. <laughs> but in this nightmare, I come up in front of a church, up to a pulpit, and I realize I've not prepared anything. I have no idea what I'm going to say. Now, this might be one of those nightmares right now, okay? Uh, But actually, I don't think so. I think this is real, right? You're not part of my dream. Anybody real here? Touch yourself. See? Okay. But uh, I have thought that if ever I'm in that situation, you know, I get that phone call from Neil, you know, at 9.15, Dad, I'm supposed to preach today, but can you cover? Um, I would go to our passage, which is 1 John 1, uh, and you might want to flip over there if you brought your Bibles. But the reason for that is, this is just a wonderful passage. It's one of my favorites. It's just so simple, and yet so really, really practical. Um, And I'm going to read it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it. And testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us or purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. A couple interesting things about this passage. The writer John, one of the apostles, one of the twelve, he had this really intriguing relationship with Jesus. On a human level... In Jesus' earthly life, they were like BFFs. You know what that is, right? You know, best friends forever. I mean, John was probably the closest person on a human level with Jesus. Um, Jesus says he, or John said he was the one whom Jesus loved. Not that Jesus didn't love everybody, but there was this special relationship. Uh, the text sometimes tells us that when they ate meals together, you know, you had the different apostles together, but John would, would be like leaning on Jesus as they sat around the table actually, they kind of sat on the ground, you know, around a short table. They're, so they were they were buds uh, in a, in a real way. So this real familiarity that John had with Jesus, and yet 
incredible awe and reverence for Jesus, the Son of God. When John was exiled to the island of Patmos, this is decades later, Jesus appeared to him in his fully glorified and resurrected state. And John says, I fell at his feet as a dead man, just so overcome with awe. John calls him the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why is he saying that about Jesus? Here he calls Jesus the eternal life. So you have this interesting combination of a tremendous familiarity on a human level and yet great awe for Jesus, the second son of, of the Godhead. And, and that's, that's instructive for us because it kind of needs to be the same with us in some ways in which we have this close relationship with God and yet, of course, always full of great awe and, and worship. The second thing about this passage is he, he makes these claims that are pretty incredible. Uh, basically, he says, this is the Christian life. And these things that we'll, we'll see in just a moment will determine probably more than anything else if we're happy people or unhappy people. If we're, as Christians we are, are prosperous in our spiritual life or we live kind of a very mediocre spiritual life. That he basically, these things will determine those things. So we're going to look at three things in this passage, which just come right out of the text itself. One is, what is this really intriguing notion about fellowship with God? What is that? Fellowship with God. Secondly, what does he teach us about how do we deal with our sin? And some real practical stuff there. A commitment to confessing our sin. And then thirdly, if we have time, and, and we may or may not have time, but uh, what is this commitment we, we also make to really come under his commands? He talks about that uh, at the end of um, at the text we just read. Okay, so first of all, this, this, you know, what is this notion of communion, fellowship with God? He says it over and over in this text. Our fellowship is with, with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. How can that be? I mean, God is the God who created everything, not just earth, not just our bodies, not just you know, living life, but, but the whole universe. He's the one who flung stars into space. You know, we learned this last week that they, scientists discovered this planet, which is very Earth-like. Did you see that story? And, and it's just around the corner. It's only 1,400 light years away. <laughs> so if you could get on your little starship, go the speed of light, hop in, strap your seatbelt on, you'd be there in just 1,400 years. I mean, I don't know what jet lag would be like in that kind of situation. <laughs> It'd probably be a bit of a challenge. And yet, So this God who made this yet calls us into deep, personal, living communion, your soul to his soul. How can that be? I mean, let's not take that for granted. That's a radical concept. I mean, listen to some of these verses from from Scripture uh, that basically kind of talk about this. You may even want to close your eyes and just kind of let these portions from the Word of God uh, wash over you. Psalm 73. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's beautiful poetry about that relationship, living relationship with God. John 14, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him or in him. 
You ever thought about that? God the Father, God the Son are somehow have made their home, their residence in your heart if you're a disciple of Christ. Paul says, Romans 8 uh, says, we do not receive a spirit that makes us a slave, again, to fear. We don't live in fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship, of daughtership. You're a child of God. And we cry to him what? Abba, Abba, Father. Again, the great, infinite God, and yet on a personal level, Abba, Father. It's incredible. One person that's quoted oftentimes from up here uh, is G.K. Chesterton. You've probably heard you know, him mentioned up here a few times, right? And just a fascinating figure. He was an intellectual. He's a writer at the, at the beginnings of the 1900s. He was really big on the whole London scene and then in the newspapers and writings. And he had a conversion. He came to faith in Christ, and it was remarkable. And then he used to go toe-to-toe with the liberal or the uh, secular materialists of the day like Bertrand Russell and, and, uh, and basically win those debates. And his writings were really powerful, uh, influencing C.S. Lewis to come to faith. Anyway, early in his days as a believer, a reporter came to him and said, you know, Mr. Chester, we've been hearing about your faith, and uh, it's fascinating. What, can you tell us, what would you say right now if Jesus was just right here standing next to you? And without missing a beat, he says, he is. <laughs> he is. Because <laughs> even though he was young in his Christian life, he knew the secret that Jesus was right there living uh, with him. See, this isn't theological. This is, this is real. This is experiential. And the relationship, I mean, think of a, your closest possible human relationship. Maybe it's your husband, your wife, maybe a child, maybe a parent, maybe a roommate, maybe a, just a real deep best friend that you've walked with for years. And what, is, what describes that? Well, it's living life together, isn't it? It's experiencing things together. There's closeness. There may be intimacy. There's communion, heart to heart, and doing life together. And, and that kind of relationship, in some ways, describes the same thing that you and I have with God, or we can have. Uh, how does that happen? A friend of mine told me about this story that he had heard um, from a young German pastor. Uh, so this is secondhand, but my friend heard it from the horse's mouth. He says, you know, I, was, I came home after work uh, one day from the office, and I noticed when I got home that my new little kitten was up in the tree, and I couldn't reach him, and I wanted to get him down. So how can I get him down? So he thought, okay, I came up with an idea. He grabbed a, a length of rope, tied one end of the rope around the back bumper of his car, tied the other end up in the tree as high as he could, because it was kind of a young tree, still a little bit bendable, tied it really good, and then eased his Volkswagen forward. And the tree started going like that. Okay, eased it forward. Okay, let me go two more feet. Two more feet. And all of a sudden he heard, twang! (laughs) No more kitten. Gone. Disappeared. The next day, he was in the grocery store, and he uh, saw one of his parishioners, and he says, oh, guten Morgen, Frau Schmidt, wie geht's, you know, how are you? Uh, I noticed you're in the pet food aisle. Uh, What's that about? I didn't know that you had a pet. (laughs) Pastor, we didn't, but you wouldn't believe what happened yesterday. (laughs) We were sitting outside having a lovely time in the garden. And our little Renate comes up and says, Mommy, Mommy, I, I want a kitten. Please, can you give me a kitten? I really want a kitten. Please, 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 please. And I said, okay, well, um, 
go pray to God (laughs) and just see what he does. And you wouldn't believe what happened. Out of the sky. True story. Okay, true story. The point is God calls us into a kind of ongoing relationship where we live it with him. He calls us into a, a life of spontaneity, of adventures, things we pray. He answers. He deals with our life. He, he leads us in kind of all sorts of uh, you know, fascinating things in, in that kind of relationship. And we do so in his presence. You know, we sang the song last week. This is the air I breathe. His holy presence. I'm desperate for you, Lord. And that's what God calls you to. That's what God invites me into. And we go through life and we can just, we're just back and forth with the Lord. You know, Lord, I'm going into this meeting. I'm a little worried about it. I'm bothered. Help me. Help me not to say the wrong things. Help me to be patient. Or Lord, I'm stuck in traffic right now. I've got to get to this place. Will you please just clear the traffic? Or if not, (laughs) make it so that my lateness won't be too bad and just give me patience right now. Give me peace right now, because right now I'm really kind of, you know, all kinds of things. We just go through life giving it to him, living it with him, back and forth in that relationship, that uh, personal relationship with him. I love how John Ortberg puts it. John Ortberg is one of my favorite Bible teachers. Listen to this. He says, the soul is incapable of satisfying itself, but it is also incapable of living without satisfaction. You were made for soul satisfaction, but you will only find it in God. The soul craves to be secure. The soul craves to be loved. The soul craves to be significant. And we find these only in God in a form that he can satisfy us. That's why the psalmist says to God, because your love is better than life, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. The soul and appetite and satisfaction are dominant things in the Bible. The soul craves because it is meant for God. My soul finds rest in God. And if I were to ask you this morning, are you experiencing that? We would probably get lots of answers, wouldn't we? Understandably. Some would say, absolutely, praise the Lord. Others would say, yeah, sometimes. And others still may say, I've never experienced that. And hopefully we will all move forward this morning uh, from, from the word of God in that. Do you ever notice that there's a, a difference in how we pray for other people than how we pray for ourselves? We pray for a brother or sister in church, maybe in a small group, right? And of course, we may pray for their circumstantial needs. Okay, yes, they've asked prayer for this job thing or whatever. But then we quickly move into what? Lord, help them know you closer. Lord, let them see how much you love them. Lord, let them go deeper with you. Why do we pray that way? Because we sense that ultimately is the most important thing. That ultimately is going to affect them more than the circumstantial things. But how do we pray for ourselves? Well, Lord, fix this. You know, give me that. I need this job. I need this. You know, we somehow escape that. But, you know, that's that's just being a little short-sighted perhaps. Because it's when we're not experiencing God closely, well, that's when we can get big egos We can fall into this sin or that sin, or we can get really, really discouraged, isn't it? And, you know, you and I can have all sorts of notions in our head about what makes our spiritual life, what describes our spiritual life as maybe being okay, and many of them are false premises, aren't they? Um, Well, I'm from a good Christian family. 
or I'm really active at church. I go to every meeting. Every time the doors are open, I'm there. Or I know my Bible in and out. Or, you know, I've really perfected the art of putting up a really good Christian demeanor. <laughs> you know, and these are false things because what the text is talking about is the heart, isn't it? This is a heart-level kind of, of thing. So accept no substitute. Well, to have this kind of experiential day-to-day fellowship with God really requires two things according to what John writes next. And one is, how do you and I deal with our sin? And how do you and I deal with our wills? Are we under his commands or not? Are those commitments there? Um, So the first thing is, first essential commitment is confession of sin. Looking again at chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. I don't know if we can bring that up or not. If if not, don't, don't worry about it. But it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, kind of the same kind of thing, we make him out to be a liar. Sort of this little sandwiching, verse 9, in, in the middle. Um, and what's that talking about? Um, but in the, in the middle it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this may sound like a negative thing if we say we haven't sinned, you know, we've got this problems, we're a liar, blah, 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 we're self-deceived. But really what he's saying is extremely positive. This is exciting. This is really, really positive because he's holding out to us the prospect that you and I can live 100% guilt-free. 100%, 24-7, with a clear conscience, with a clean conscience. Anybody want that? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, guilt-free living. Now, the term sin, <clears throat> let's just unpack that just for a second, because the word sin is one of those words that we almost hear never outside these four walls, right? It's kind of one of those church words. So what, what do we mean by sin? What does the Bible mean by sin? Sin, at, at its core, basically, is disobeying God. God says, live this way. We don't say, nope, fooey on that. We're going to, you know, we're going to do our own thing. And we can talk about the rebellion aspects of sin. We can talk about our thoughts that become wicked, our values being wrong, our actions being hurtful and wrong and, and God-defying. And you know, one of the key things about sin is that it's not just that it's wrong and that it's disobedience to God, but it destroys. It's harmful. It hurts you. It hurts me when we live in any way contrary to God's way. Let me illustrate. <clears throat> Let's say... Your grass is getting a little high. It is August. So it's time to go down to B&Q and buy a new lawnmower. Anybody do that lately? Um, so you go, you get this box. You take it home. You put the little bolts together. You put the petrol in. You fire it up. And you're just about ready to start on your lawn. And then you notice this little notice on the side of the lawnmower. And it says, don't stick your foot underneath this, you idiot. Or something to that effect. <laughs> and immediately you think this, these rebellious thoughts well up inside you and say, who is Mountfield to tell me what I can or can't do with my feet? <laughs> so I'm just going to put my foot in there and show them I'm going to assert my personhood. And after I've lost a few toes, <laughs> I'm just so angry for B&Q and Mountfield. They've ruined my life. You know, that's kind of how we are towards God sometimes, isn't it? When, you know, so many of God's commands are just for our own good. They're telling us how to live life successfully and not to wreck our lives with our stupid ways. 
The other thing we see here is over, we've seen this two or three times in the text, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. The blood of Jesus purifies us. Or Hebrews 9, if we can possibly bring that up, uh, says, it, says it this way. Um, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? What is all this about blood and, and washing us? Well, it's talking about, of course, Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth, real historical figure, lived, was arrested, was executed in a brutal way. So, of course, there's blood. So it was a very human event in a sense, right? But it was more than a human event. It was a cosmic event. Scripture basically tells us that what God did, what Jesus did on the cross, all of history hinges on that moment. It's the pivotal point of human history because God was forging for us a way for us to be right with God. And, and, and here, as believers, as disciples of Christ, people who are following him, we apply that blood metaphorically to our consciences and we're washed, we're cleansed. And, it, and it's a wonderful thing. If we don't have that, what do we have? Well, we have guilt. We carry around some measure of guilt every moment. And whether consciously or unconsciously, our thoughts go back to what we did, that we don't feel right, that we don't feel good, that we're guilty. And, you know, psychologists say that guilt is possibly the strongest human emotion or the strongest negative human emotion because over time it can absolutely destroy a psyche. Just continually bringing tension, a vague unease, depression, anger, Drugs leading people to alcohol abuse, all kinds of bad, destructive escapes. But here, no, the believer can completely be washed of those things. And you know, as a, as a follower of Christ, if you've made Christ your Lord and Savior, you don't have to carry any of that around. Never. You don't have to carry it around. And you may think, okay, Dan, I, I get that. For the most part, I live that, but I can't let go of this one thing because you don't know 10 years ago I had an affair. I didn't, but I'm just saying, you know, as an example... Or, or I did something at work that was so illegal and so hurtful to our competitors. It was so I, I, I just live with that every day. Don't. Don't live with that kind of guilt. It is so unnecessary as Christians. You know, if, if, if it was appropriate for Christians to live with regret, then the Apostle Paul would have never gotten out of bed. I mean, before he came to faith, <clears throat> he was involved in arresting Christians and seeing them executed. And then he became a Christian leader. I mean, that's got to be a little awkward. You know, pastoral situation. Oh, by the way, you helped kill my parents. You know, a little But he didn't live with regret. He, he knew it was under, completely under the blood. You see, what we're talking about here is not perfection in any way, shape, or form. It's being absolutely realistic about our sin and about our character, the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, there's nothing fake about this. It's a way to be, you know, nothing manufactured, nothing prudish. It's a way, in fact, it's the only way for us to be absolutely realistic about our sin, our failings, our offenses, our guilt, and at the same time to be absolutely 100% comfortable. A friend of mine was ministering in a, in a situation in Lebanon in the 80s. This was on the streets of Beirut um, just after the Civil War had ended, and he was with the ministry team, and they had some music, you know, and then after the music, people would come up, and, and they would talk to people and lead them to faith in Christ. So my friend uh, Grant was telling me the story that, you know, he, he's 
this one young man came up to him, and he had been part of one of the Lebanese militias. I don't know if it was Sunni or Shia or Maronite or one of those things, but they, you know, they all did horrible things. And uh, this man said, I want what you just talked about. I, I need that cleansing. I need that forgiveness. And uh, I said, okay, well, tell me about it. And he says, well, in the Civil War, uh, I was not only involved in killing people, but we would go into homes and rape and torture and I even killed children. And Grant said, the last thing I wanted to do at that moment was to lead him in a prayer of salvation. I wanted to find a knife and just gut him. I mean, so reprehensible, so repulsive. And yet he knew the gospel meant no, everybody, no matter what, can come into the kingdom of God and be cleansed. And that that man is a brother to to this day. The point is, nothing you have ever done can shock God. It all can be under, under the blood. Now, let's, let's kind of zero in just for a moment on verse 9. Maybe if we could possibly put up uh, 1, 9 again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First of all, we might be a little confused. Okay, for me to be forgiven, I have to confess. And there is true, you know, for us to come to faith in Christ, we need to repent and come on God's terms. But this is talking about day to day. So does that mean if I sin in some way, and then 10 minutes later I get hit by a truck and die, and I didn't get a chance to confess it, that I go into eternity with unforgiven sins? No, that's not what it's saying. This is talking about experientially in our day to day lives. You know, God will forgive us in the sense of taking it out of the way in terms of being an impediment or a blockage in that fellowship that experiential relational fellowship. You know, think about it. This is like the relationship between a parents and, and children. Let's say a young teenage has a wild night out, does all kinds of carousing and terrible things, and comes home the next day, and around the breakfast table with his parents, the mood is frosty because he knows he's done all kinds of things in disobedience. They know he's done all kinds of things disobeying what they told him to do. Now, does that mean he's no longer their son? No, of course he's still their son. They love him. He loves them. It's just that at that moment, things are tense because there's these unresolved issues. But see, if we confess our sins, God is going to cleanse us, take that out of the way as any impediment uh, in terms of my relationship, experiencing him, communing with him uh, right now. The word confess means literally to say the same thing. So if I confess my sin, I am going to say the same thing about my sin that God is saying about it. There's a fully coming on God's terms. It's not coming on my terms. It's I'm coming to God on his terms. And I'm fully acknowledging whatever it is I'm guilty of, whether it's in the past or it's something maybe just in the last 10 minutes. And, you know, one thing about true repentance, uh, it can't blame other people and it can't excuse yourself. If you're excusing or blaming, then you're not really fully saying the same thing as God. Um, but I'm going to say the same things and lay it out. I'm putting it out on the table, God, and agreeing with you about it. So would you just deal with it? Couldn't we deal with it right now and get it out of the way as any sort of blockage in my fellowship with you right now and the rest of the day? That's what it's saying. I, I love it. You know, it's, there's this paradox that for sins to be covered... Uh, they first need to be uncovered. Does that make sense? And, and just lay it out there. 
You know, we can spend so much time, so much energy trying to project this image that I'm a good person. I'm trying to convince you of that. I'm trying to convince myself of that. I'm trying to convince, God, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. So I'm okay. You're okay. Don't reject me. Why do we do that? Well, I think it's because we live in a society where we are constantly being judged, aren't we? You go to work, you're being judged on your performance. You're around your family at the holidays, they're judging you for your clothes, your waistline, <laughs> your, your bank balance, whatever, uh, your body language. We're just constantly being criti- critiqued, aren't we? No wonder we're such neurotic and insecure people. Uh, and we can bring that into our relationship with God, but you know, again, this is the only basis for us to be completely realistic about our sin, about our, our, our character, about our failings, about our offenses, uh, and at the same time, comfortable. And even with one another, we can be transparent in the body of Christ. We can be transparent. We can be real. Um, I can share with you my most embarrassing things. I'm not going to right now, but uh, but the things that, if you just knew this about me, you would absolutely reject me. No, you wouldn't, because in Christ, we don't do that. We, we can be comfortable. We, we accept one another, because God accepts us. So no more need for pretending, no more need for hiding. There's just a need for confessing. Uh, and, and, it's a, and it's a beautiful thing. Well, how does this work? Here's how I, I understand this. At any given moment, even I'm, you know, I'm a believer I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but at any given moment, I might be in fellowship with God in a real relational, experiential way, or I might not. I might be allowing blockages in that relationship. And same thing with you. At any given moment, either you are experiencing this or, or you're not. So let's say, uh, just to illustrate, you start the day, you have a good time maybe praying a little bit and reading a little bit in the scripture, and you're, you're feeling good about the Lord. You get in your car, you start driving to work, you're on the freeway going into London maybe for some of those of you who commute, and you do something awful on the road. Just maybe, you know, you cut off a driver in a real aggressive, impatient, angry way, just for whatever reason. Um, now, does that mean at that moment you're out of fellowship with God? No, not necessarily. But you have a choice now. As the Holy Spirit says, hey, what you did back there, that wasn't right. That's, Jesus wouldn't drive that way. WWJD, how would Jesus drive? I don't know. Uh, And so you're you're feeling convicted. The Holy Spirit's putting his finger on something. At that point, you have a choice. You're at a fork in the road. If you say, you deal with it, God, you're right, I repent. Forgive me. Then fellowship goes on, unbroken. But if you say, no, forget it, I, you know, that's just the way it is. You don't know how, you know, life out here on the M40 uh, I'm not going to deal with it right now. Then you basically begin to build a wall experientially between, between you and, and God. So w- when I become aware of something, that's when I need to deal with it. Now here's the application. Let's try, try to be as practical as we possibly can. If you take one thing away from the scripture passage this morning, let it be this. How do we apply this? Basically, don't allow unconfessed sin to fester. To remain unconfessed. Because it will fester, it will block, it will build a wall between you and God. Doesn't mean you're not saved, you're still saved, you're still going to heaven. But in your, in your life experience then, you're, you're building this wall. And you're not going to experience that vibrant connection with, with God. And, and you know what? 
That's the biggest tragedy in the church, isn't it? So many followers of Christ not experiencing what they could experience because they're allowing unconfessed sin to, to basically build up this, this barrier relationally between them and God. So we need to be people when we become aware of something, be quick to deal with it and then recelebrate our fellowship with God. You know, was it last week we had communion in the Lord's table or the week before? Uh, anyway, when we have those periodically here at King's, you know, different couples will go around the church and they'll hold the bread, they'll hold the, the grape juice, and the, the leader up front will say, now let's take the Lord's Supper and let's examine your hearts to see if there's anything that's not right between you and God. So you get in the queue, and sometime between being at the end of the queue and then being up front, you know, hopefully we've dealt with anything. Lord, you know, what's going on? Help me to, you know, I repent of anything. I really want to be right with you. But, you know, that kind of reflection, that, we should be doing that all the time. Not just, you know, once a month when we have the Lord's, uh, the Lord's table. Finally, before we move on, um, and we're about out of time, but uh, let me just say, this is, I've kind of talked as if there's sort of these random sins, right? There's different failings, whatever, and that's true. But for the most part, I think we all realize that in our lives, there's particular patterns that are particularly defeating for you or for me. What do I mean? There might be a pattern, a habituation of, say, anger, that it just keeps pulling you down and defeating you, or alcohol abuse. I I saw on television this one guy who just basically ruined his family, ruined his job, everything because he just couldn't get away from the bottle. Uh, Maybe selfishness, maybe immorality or lust or pornography or maybe just anxiety all kind i mean there's we could talk about 20 different things or more things that grab you by the ankles and they won't let you go and they just keep pulling you down i don't think there's probably one person in this room who doesn't have at least one area that's like that why because we're all damaged goods through life so how do we get overcoming? How do we get over this? How do we get victory over those things and begin to be free in our lives of these things that have enslaved us or, or addictions or whatever? And that's a whole other message, and we don't have time. But verse 9 is the doorway. Verse 9 is the start of that, of confessing our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us in all unrighteousness. So again, just to restate the application Let's be people that when we become aware of, of things we've done, of something that you know, has made us guilty in our consciences, immediately bring that to God. Don't, not allowing for a moment unconfessed sin to build walls between us and God. And, and to close, you know, we, we did mention in chapter 2 this thing about obedience. Just read this again. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Jesus says, if you love me, You'll obey my commandments. He told the apostles, go out and make disciples of all nations. Remember that? Matthew 28. And as a result, thousands of churches were planted around the Roman world, the known world at that time. But what did Jesus do? He said, how do you do that? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. You see, obeying, putting ourselves under his lordship, his rulership in our lives is so very important. In fact, chapter 1 makes no sense if you don't have that as a basis. Now, let me just clear up any misunderstanding. Don't think for a moment, wait a second, I thought this is all about grace. I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved by keeping commands. What's that about? Uh, that seems to maybe a little confusing. Um, how, can, how can that be? Well, of course, we are, not, we are saved by grace. You are not made right with God because you've 
obeyed so many commands, or your, your righteousness quotient is an 83, which is better than a 60, and so you, you made the cut because the cut was 75. You know, No, it's not our performance. It's not what we do that makes us right with God. Nobody here is right with God because they deserve it. We are saved by grace. It's undeserved. But I love how Dallas Willard puts it. We can talk about grace. Grace is extremely important. It's central. But grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. We don't earn our salvation by seeking to please live in a way pleasing him. But we commit our hearts, because we're saved, to live a life pleasing to him. And do we do that perfectly? Absolutely not. No one here does. But as Dallas Willard says, you know, we're learning to be disciples imperfectly, uh, but progressively. And this area is so important, this, this, this commitment of the heart to obey, to be men and women who obey Jesus. That's what the kingdom of God means. He's the king. We're under his rule. Um, Willard puts it this way, one whose aim is anything less than obedience to the law of God in the spirit and power of Jesus will never have a soul at rest in God and will never advance significantly in spiritual transformation into Christ-likeness. Now, again, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about people who are going to be in heaven. But because they've not really surrendered their lives, they're not experiencing what God has for them. So why is this so crucial? Well, when we learn to say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to pick and choose the things I want to obey and what I'm willing to hold out and disobey. No, I'm just going to, you know, to the best I can, by your grace, I'm going to submit and obey in this area. Every area of our life could be our money, our time, how we treat people, our marriage, our kids, our sex life, our, you know, how we deal with character issues. God, I'm going to put all of that under your rulership. And we find that when we do that, it's life-giving. And a few years into that, we think how stupid I was for just for delaying that because uh, it's life-giving to live God's way. Well, just recap this before Mark uh, and, and the team comes up. What God holds out for you and for me is incredible. Fellowship with the God of the universe. Communion, my heart with his heart, my spirit with his heart. 24-7. And also 24-7, living with an absolutely clear and clean conscience. Not even a, not even a gram of guilt pulling me down. That's, that's incredible. That's wonderful. Accept no substitute. Not, don't accept religion. This is about relationship. It's not about religion. Not activity, not putting out an outward thing. This is the heart. Accept no substitute. So let's be people who know how to readily confess our sins, how to readily set our hearts to obey the Lordship of Jesus, and then to walk without guilt and enjoy that sweet living communion with God. Amen.